Welcome to the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male advocate, and black male studies scholar. In the program, we examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. Our goal is to remind people of black men's humanity. Call in after a half hour to the show at 310-928-7733. All right. Welcome, everybody, back to the Onyx Report. I hope all is well and that you guys enjoyed uh, your New Year's. Uh, hopefully nothing dangerous. <laughs> uh, we know how crazy it can get out there. So I hope family, friends and yourselves are well are in, uh, in, in a beautiful position. Um, enjoying the introduction to the new decade. Um, thanks for joining in with me. As you know, I usually do uh, a number of current events. I'm not necessarily going to do current events, but I will point out about four um, different uh, pieces of information that might be useful to some of you out there might be interesting and it might be informative. Um, these are in no particular order, uh, just really having more to do with some of the things that I, I tend to post on social media, but I think tend to be useful. Um, first of which is an article on timeline.com called No, talking about women's role in white supremacy is not blaming women. Interesting article that examines the role of white women in the advancement of white supremacy. Uh, so check that out. Also, a historical piece on the griot um, that's entitled Hundreds of Black Men, Women and Children Burned Alive, Shot, Lynched by White Mobs During the Red Summer, Ignored a Century Later. So please check that out. Good historical in information about um, some of the ancestors that, have, that were forcibly removed, um, killed outright. Um, also, uh, there's a piece. And this I put on, on, on Facebook as well, and we, we've had some exchanges over it because I, I placed information like this uh, the last few years. This article on businessinsider.com uh, entitled Wealthy Older Women Are Hiring Men in Kenya to Romance Them. Um, and I posted it mainly because, well, two reasons. One, because few people really pay attention to the role the forced role of men and boys in uh, various sex industries, uh, the economic conditions that force it, and sometimes the outright uh, kidnapping and forced participation in sex that men endure around the world. But this particular article, I posted it partially because of that to call attention to it, and it bring it calls attention to Kenya as well as the Caribbean, and believe it or not, that happens here. As a matter of fact, I even have. Uh, a gay colleague that informed me about how many black gay men have been forced into same kinds of the same kinds of dynamic by wealthier white gay men. So there's a dynamic there uh, that occurs with black men, straight or gay, that doesn't often get talked about. Um, the other reason I post this piece is if you notice the title, wealthy older women are hiring men in Kenya to romance them. It's the same type of titling that takes place when teachers are found, especially female teachers, are found having raped uh, their students, right? Uh, or just women, uh, older women uh, and younger boys altogether. It's a it's a title that avoids uh, critiquing and avoids identifying when women commit acts that uh, you know are egregious, especially if men commit them. 
Um, you, you, you've never seen an article about uh, wealthy older men going to another country for sex to romance them. It's usually called rape. It's usually prostitution or whatever other terms are brought uh, to bear. And part of the reason for that is something that I've said for the longest. We don't really know how to account for female uh, acts of evil. We don't really know two things. We don't know how to account for female acts of evil, and we really don't know how to uh, conceptualize black male vulnerability. And those are two things that create blinders for us that prevent us from really grasping what's going on uh, in, in, in various types of human engagement. So uh, that piece on Kenya, again, is on businessinsider.com. Very interesting piece. There's also a few video um, articles as well as um, some filmed works that I've seen that deal with this issue. But this article is, 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 is exemplary of how we deal with this because what it attempts to do is frame these older, wealthier European women as lonely and, you know, they're coming down there and participating in this sexual economy out of loneliness, out of destitution, not destitution financially, but kind of emotional destitution, even though they are the aggressors and they're really not doing much different than what we've seen in other content, uh, situations where the genders are reversed. So check that out. But, but more than the article itself, pay attention to the way that the, the, the article is framed so you can see how it's easy for many of us, including men and boys, for that matter, to really overlook their own experiences, because there's really not a lot of places in media where you can go and see uh, this frame properly for what it is. Um, lastly, I uh, just wanted to quickly mention something that some of you may have already seen, but uh, just to give a frame for what the current political current moment, uh, the city of Dallas dismissed um, from Brotham Jean's uh, wrongful death lawsuit. So that's an interesting story on the route. As you can find that pretty much anywhere if you Google that as well. But something to keep abreast of when it comes to holding uh, those in power in check and the limitations of that. Uh, today, uh, we have we'll probably have a few surprise guests drop in. But the theme of today's show is twofold. The first is to address um, blackmail depression uh, slash suicide. So we're going to look at that having come off the holiday season, um, you know, from from really from Thanksgiving to Christmas to New Year's, we tend to notice the suicide rates go up and we tend to notice that um, feelings of isolation and loneliness increase, even amongst some who have family around them. But I like to focus, as you know, this show is entirely focused on black males. So looking at the experiences black males have had in regard to depression and suicide, during, especially during the holiday season, but not limited to that. Um, and that that rolls into the second aspect of the show, which deals with what I'm calling a new level of brotherhood in 2020 and, and what that is and why it needs to be. Right. So those are the two you know areas of focus for today's show, mainly because uh, I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary to acknowledge the vulnerability, the depression, the acts of suicide, as well as the need for a new brotherhood and, and, and an outline of what that is. And this is going to be a sketch in the sense that it's an open sketch that we can develop, uh, hopefully, uh, in, a, in a larger context. This is not something I am merely you know, proposing that other people do. I'm saying I'm trying to open the discussion and allow for that to be something we build on together because I think it's necessary. Now, the reason I start with depression is that um, 
contrary to what some of you may think, you know, because I don't tend to get a lot of callers. <laughs> but what, what I have gotten, uh, even when I started my blog, is I get letters from men really from around the world. I've gotten them from Africa. I've gotten them from Europe. I've even gotten them from Asia. Uh, but black men around the world, of course, quite a few in the U.S. and especially in the academy from graduate students to professors who will comment on the things that I bring up but can't really afford to go public. And I understand that. Um, but still, I get these letters and, you know, I tend to ask them if it's okay to share certain things, especially their names. And I don't, I never want to out anybody like that, especially if they're sending me private information or whatnot. But um, I tend to get a lot of letters from black men who have experienced different types of misandry, uh, who have been uh, accosted because they were black men, not only by the state or by the family court or the court itself, uh, but even in their own intimate relationships. Um, I also get uh, men who are on the verge of suicide. You know, I've gotten a few. I've gotten brothers who were in the military and forcibly removed uh, based on accusations that were baseless and with no evidence. I've had brothers write me about being fired from jobs at the at, at the accusation of, of um, you know, unbecoming behavior again with no evidence. I've had professors write me to tell me stories that reaffirm what my my uh, mentor taught me when I was an undergrad, that your career is in the hands of every, you know, every student. But most particularly, as he used to put it, every 17 year old girl, that's real. And a lot of black men experience it, but can't afford to enter the public sphere in a space uh, for debate um, for one reason or another, whether it be family or whether it be, you know, the potential loss of a positive reputation. But they share these stories with me nonetheless. And they're heart wrenching in some instances. I've had brothers call me, you know, who have a gun sitting right in front of them, sitting alone in their apartment. Um, a couple weeks ago, I'm going to say about a month ago, I posted on on Facebook and Twitter. I asked black men, you know, who reaches out to you to see if you're OK? And there were many that wrote publicly and privately that no one does. You know, even when they have families, they're expected to be there for family, but there's nothing that you know family needs to do for them. Part of that, I think, goes into how we conceptualize black masculinity, how we've been socialized into it. But part of it has nothing to do with anything black men themselves have actually done. It comes from a very Western interpretation of, of men that's very isolated, very, you know, a rugged individualist. Um, and in some ways, even those that we've come to expect support from that still falls within that acceptable framework of masculinity still don't get it so you know it, it amazed me this year to hear how many black men wrote me to say nobody does nobody checks nobody calls unless they want something uh unless i'm providing some resource and i'm not only talking about single uh men with no children who live by themselves i'm talking about men with families men with multiple kids and and and, and who are married and on the outside seem happy Right. And these are the people that I really want to identify because these are not the people that people think of when it comes for extending support emotionally or otherwise, uh, even financially, you know, especially during the Christmas season. We know that expectations tend to run high when it comes to gift giving and so on and so forth. But you, you, you find that there's there's a cadre of black men who tend to go overlooked. Um and I want to, you know, hopefully in the course of this show tonight, 
speak to some of those men. Um, I even had one brother who I reached out to. I've never met him in person, but, you know, you build relationships with people over social media. So, you know, them through the conversations you have. But that's kind of it. Um, and I realized I hadn't heard from him in a while. He usually would comment, you know, on some of my posts. And I just reached out to him at random, wrote him and just said, hey, man, how you doing? And um, he told me he was sitting in his car and he was facing a wall. And he was getting ready to rev the engine and drive straight into it. And all it took was someone reaching out to pull him back from that edge, you know, but and to me, it was just really a random moment. But it made me think about how many black men had reached that point and myself. I mean, I, you know, I think we all experienced that that cliff at one point in time, at one point in your life or another. But it, it definitely is a different thing. When you have somebody, you have people that reach out to you, people that, you know, care on a regular basis and really have no, uh, you know, self-interested motivation behind what they're doing, you know, other than just to extend love to you. That's something that I, I noticed that it doesn't seem to cross people's minds that uh, many men need. Uh, and so I would urge you, if you're hearing this, you know, to reach out. And I would say that year round, but especially during the holidays. Right. Um, because there's a lot of social practices that tend to go on that are that are all about celebration and camaraderie and support and all of that. But we really don't we really underestimate how how many people don't have that. But even those that do, you know, they're in the party, they're at the family gathering, they're doing all of those things. They're buying gifts, they're celebrating, they're participating, they're serving their role in the family. But they won't tell you that nobody's reached out to them. Nobody sat with them and just said, hey, man, how are you doing? You know, or is there anything you need or just really letting them get something off their chest, just loving them enough to be present. It's amazing to me how much I don't hear that. And that's, of course, supported by the kinds of practices that go on. Um, if I just do a cursory kind of overview of 2019, when I think about the perception of men, but especially black men, I can understand why, you know, this kind of incentivizes people to not think of black men's vulnerability, black males across age, I should say. And, you know, I, I can think about how all of those things, you know, kind of dovetail together when the when everything from policy to media reinforces the idea that uh, it's not necessary. You know, black men don't really require that. It's not needed. So, you know, it, it's it's, you know, that to be ignored. So when I think about the, the, the 2019 and I think about how black men and men in general were perceived, some of the things that come to mind are uh, like the notions of toxic masculinity. Now, this is something that I've heard the last few years in the academy um, ad nauseum. You know, often without any kind of qualitative or quantitative data to back it up. But it became popular and almost with a religious zeal accepted as a truism, so to speak. But toxic masculinity uh, this year, I noticed not only in the academy, but having transitioned into the mainstream um, almost unfettered. You know, I think of everything from the Gillette commercials to the blog articles about how black men um you know, are spoiled. There's there's only self-interested. They don't care about anybody, things of that nature. And I think about that kind of wave of toxic masculinity. I think what it did was it dehumanized men, uh, especially black men, that much more in the eyes of others. Uh, when I think of the accusations against black men for not defending women, uh, 
Um, I the, I haven't posted it in a while, but for the last couple of years, I've kept the same post and I've reposted it. And I have people contribute articles of examples of black men protecting women, whether it be family members or whether it be strangers. You know, black men extending out, going out, protecting people, uh, even at the loss of life. Right. And I've even announced some of those on my show in the last couple of months. But still, this accusation comes up and it's widely received. And it's definitely something that I've seen in social media being hotly debated back and forth. But I haven't seen that with any other group of men. Uh, and no, and it seems that no matter how many sacrifices black men make, it's still not respected as such. They're always treated as isolated incidents, despite evidence you know, that suggests the, the contrary. Um, black men not being fathers. This is an interesting one because regardless of what the data shows, and I think we've talked about that before here, that the data does actually show that black men t tend to be more participatory in child rearing than even other groups, uh, other racial groups of men. The, the common stereotype of black men not being fathers, black men not being present um, prevails regardless of the data. You know, I mean, I even had at one point somebody come on to one of my posts when I posted that data again about black men and, and the rates by which they support family and particularly kids. And uh, the person said, well, you know, that's not what my friends and I see. And I'm like, this is interesting. So you can actually be presented data that has been, you know, verified, that has actually been conducted, you know, a series of and, and none of that is relevant. You know what I mean? Because the stereotype is so prevalent about black male debauchery, and this even goes back to slavery. This long precedes discussions about actual fathering, uh, but but it's accepted, right? Um, uh, what I've seen also this past year and previous years as well is that blacks, uh, certain black celebrities are somehow reflective of all men, all black men in particular. Whether you're talking about R. Kelly, whether you're talking about Bill Cosby, the discussions around those particular celebrities are not just about what those individuals did, but how those individuals are somehow representative of all black men. Even though the statistics for that are like less than one percent, you know, and I, you can refer to some of Tommy Curry's posts in the last year where he's dealt with this kind of information. But somehow it, it's acceptable to take less than 1% of the population and use that to reflect on black men as a whole, right? Um, and then of course, the idea that uh, black men are not uh, not resources the way they should be, you know, and, and, and I refer to this as really as being success objects, you know, whether it be that black men are expected to be walking ATM machines, beasts of burden, unpaid bodyguards, or replaceable father figures, interchangeable slash replaceable. Either of those that you choose to look at, there's this notion that if black men don't provide others with the resources they demand, that somehow this is the failure of black men. Uh, and then, of course, in the era of Time's Up and Me Too, what we've seen is that uh, black men are happily sent to jail, but others don't necessarily have to go for one reason or another. And so it's these kinds of elements in the last year, looking over 2019, that I see really impacting uh, how black men are perceived. Now, some of the positives I've seen over the last year is that I have seen black men being, you know, coming together. Uh, especially via social media and having dialogues that were difficult to have um, before we had this, you know, this technological movement where people could really reach out and talk to other people all over the world. 
just through their phone or their computer. I'm starting to see more black men gathering, having critical dialogues that I haven't seen before and asking questions, uh, one of which I'm going to deal with in my next show uh, in terms of happiness and what happiness actually looks like for black men. That's one of the next uh, that's going to be the next episode um, where we deal with that. And I'm going to bring in a good colleague of mine to help talk about that. Um, I'm seeing black men willing to question our own beliefs, our own assumptions about ourselves and others, about our social roles and family and relationships. You know, I'm starting to see black men raising questions like this that I hadn't seen in prior decades um, and really taking an unapologetic look. For the better or for worse, I'm starting to see more of that. I'm starting to see more black men actually accept one another. And I'm starting to see uh, an acknowledgement of a shared experience of black manhood across class, you know, that I'm really starting. And I'm hoping to promote more of that. I, I'm really looking to bring, you know, the, the kind of voices to this program that highlight black male experiences across class, across, you know, uh, occupation, uh, but speak to the same existence, you know, um, so I'm starting to see those kind of things. I'm starting to see movements form. And this is important, right? This is important because one of the things that I point out, uh, especially in my class, is that we really haven't seen um, a significant gender movement for black men. We haven't really seen that. Right. We've seen a feminist movement in, you know, in the, in the 19, uh, well, you know, in mainstream society in the 1960s, unless you want to go back to the 19th century. But at least from the 1960s on, uh, we saw a black feminist movement from the late 1970s forward. But what we haven't really seen is, you know, a movement for men. Um, and I think that has been something that is happening. For the first time in, in, that I've seen in my lifetime, um, it is happening, but it's not um, it's not publicized in the same kind of way. It's not given any major platforms like you've seen with other groups. Other groups, you know, had television access, film access, you know, academic access. I mean, to this day, you can't get a degree in anything related to black males in a formal sense. I mean, unless you go to Edinburgh and, and look and look up Dr. Tommy Curry, you actually have to go to Scotland. But in a, in a formal sense, getting a degree on anything related directly to black males, especially if that's in the title of your degree, um, you'll have a hard time in the United States finding anything like that. Yet for other groups, you can find that. And I think there's there's something to be said about what that means. Right. So as we are in a climate where that's the the going dynamic that's what's acceptable um the gender movement that we do see happening is is has gone through several stages already in the last five to seven years depending on where you clock the beginning of it and it's it's occurred mainly on social media because black men have a different experience you know you're not necessarily going to see black men in the streets holding signs and there are reasons for that Especially if you know the history of incarceration in this country and black masculinity, you know that that's you, you'd understand why that wouldn't be the nature by which black men would engage in that type of behavior. So it takes on different tropes because of the particular type of existence that black males have. Right. But what those tropes are can be difficult if you're not in the know. Right. So social media opened up that opportunity for black men to have those dialogues. And there's a very what I would call a silent movement that is happening. What 
what I think it needs, however, uh, since it's, I, I'll say it's very much blue collar led, you know, uh, black men who are taking to media and voicing their experiences. And I think what it needs is, is an infusion of brothers who are coming from all kinds of different backgrounds and experiences. And I think that infusion will broaden it in, in a manner that it needs to be in, in order to really capture the life experiences of black males as black men begin to trace and articulate what it is they're trying to achieve and what it is uh, they're looking to accomplish, regardless of what that is. Right. Uh, and so I think it's necessary. And I think that that's happening slowly but surely. Um, but it is happening. And so in that, those are one of some of the positives that I've seen kind of looking over 2019, um, you know, followed following some of the negatives I pointed out that shape public opinion. But if I can step back a bit, part of the reason I decided to do suicide and depression is because um, I saw this article uh, from the Sun Sentinel, but there, there's, you know, different, a couple of different websites that had a, had a published on it. And it's about a young man named Bryce Gowdy. And Bryce Gowdy was an athlete who apparently committed suicide by train. And the way it's looking is he laid out on the tracks um, and took his own life. And his mother apparently posted a video talking about what he was going through, the difficulties he was experiencing, he was experiencing um, how his family was homeless, even though he was a prospect uh, as far as college athletics. Um, he himself was a teenage uh, football player. Let me see the website I have up here. Sorry, it has all these extra advertisers on, advertisements on it that makes it difficult. But he was a teen football star about to go to Georgia Tech on a full ride. Um, but he and his family had no place to go. Uh, he was quite depressed. Uh, he was worried about, you know, the, the impact uh, his needs had on his mother, uh, both of whom were dealing with their own distinct um, demons, uh, psychological demons, so to speak. And um, he took his life. And I found it interesting. The mother, of course, like I said, she did a video where she is, you know, in turmoil, as any parent would be about the loss of their child, especially at their own hand. Um, and as the article that I read goes on, it begins to talk about how she addressed him when he came to her. And, you know, this is not to denigrate her at all, because I think this this is actually quite par for the course in terms of how people see black males. But at, at a particular point in time, she just kind of told him, you know, that he just needs to stand up. He needs to deal with it. Um, he needs to handle it and, you know, and, and kind of take responsibility. Um, and she said because she's dealing with her own demons. Now, again, I'm not really talking about her, you know, because as a parent, I can definitely say that, um, you know, I've done my best, but I have no idea what kind of mistakes I may have made. And I'm more than sure that my son uh, will let me know uh, as I've let my parents know ad nauseum. And, and, you know, that's what kids tend to do when they reach a certain age. So I, I as a parent, I can relate to, you know, doing the best you can and not really knowing what impact it'll have until, you know, you see what happens with your child. But her approach to telling him to just kind of man up, and that's my words, not hers, but that was the gist of it, is not unique to her. 
it is a perspective that's rooted in, I think, how black males have come to be seen, where, again, going back to Tommy Curry's arguments in The Man Not, uh, we don't really know how to perceive black male vulnerability. We don't really know how to make sense of it. We don't know how to be empathetic toward it, and we don't know how to support it. Um, and I think that's part of what was going on here. I doubt she knew how on the edge he, he was. Um, and I don't think she was doing, she said what she said out of carelessness, but I still think it, it comes out of a very particular framework uh, in terms of how we see men and males uh, across age for that matter. Because even young men as young as five are told to man up uh, by family members, by parents, you know, very early age. I've seen toddlers, black male toddlers, whose parents, uh, fathers and mothers will tell them to man up. You know, very early on. And when you when you relate that to statistics that show that black males are perceived as older than they are uh, starting at the age of five, you, you can really see now. That, and that's that's even in school systems. That's even in daycare. That's not just parents and families. Um, so anyway, it, it, you can see the impact that that would have. Right. But as we talk about this, I think I brought this up in the prior episodes with my interview um, with um, Jellaba Baba. Uh-oh. Hello. Hey, how's it going? All right. Is that Dr. Neil? Uh, uh, Dr. Niffley, yes, sir. You can just call me Dr. Steve. Dr. Niffley. Okay. Because yes, I, I have a few people coming in, so I, it just kind of added you in. I didn't know you were there. How you doing, brother? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Doing well. I actually, I'm glad you, you came in when you did, because I was just about to give the uh, suicide rates for black males. And I was talking about the uh, teen athlete Bryce Gowdy, who apparently committed suicide by train. He laid on the train tracks, apparently. Um, uh, and what, what I was about to point out is um, since 19, what is it? Uh, I presented this in my last show, but from 1999 to 2017, there have actually been 23,295 black men or black males who've committed suicide. And that's almost to the number 20,000 more males than females. So there's there's definitely something going on um, in the black community that is not just a black issue, but it's very specific to black males. As one CNN article reports, um, it says the study is in line with earlier research that has shown that African-American boys, especially younger boys between ages five and 11, have experienced an increase in the rate of suicide deaths. In black children ages five to 12, the suicide rate was found to be two times higher uh, when com than compared to white children, whereas among girls, there was a statistically significant decrease in suicide attempts from 1991 to 2017. Uh, there was not a similar decline amongst boys. Um, now, you yourself, you wrote a couple of pieces, a number of pieces, actually, but the two that stood out to me, were, there was the piece that we initially met on when you did Suicide in Black Males. Uh, well, actually, it was Silent Frustration, Depression in the Black Male. But then you did another piece, Suicide in Black Males, Understanding the Hatred Within. And, and I was hoping that you could drop a word about depression and suicide as it relates to black males uh, in 2019, 2020. Sure. <clears throat> so there are uh, a couple of things for us to consider there, but but two main ones, at least in this space, for us to think about. Uh, the first one is um, thinking through how we might miss 
depression or suicidality in black males because it doesn't present itself in the same way that we otherwise might see for other populations. And one of the main reasons for that is because black males have not been allowed uh, based on socialization and specifically around their race and gender to be able to express emotion and to be able to uh, own uh, challenges in their lives in the same ways that other groups have been allowed to do. Mm. And so because of that, uh, many black males are seeking out or are committing suicide or attempting suicide uh, via suicide by friend, suicide by cop, suicide just like with the young man that you were referring to mm-hmm. uh, through other lethal means uh, that we otherwise might not look for. Mm-hmm. Another way that we miss depression is because we um, confuse irritability and anger yes. with versus sadness or anxiety. Absolutely. So when we see a black male that has experienced sadness but is exhibiting it in terms of this um, irritability or, or anger, we're more likely to place a, a deviant tag on it as opposed to saying maybe he's depressed. Yes. Or sad. And, I, and I've noticed that it, the two primary things responses that I've seen are either anger or in terms of how people interpret it, it, it they either interpret people's uh, black male's behavior as angry or as he's he's okay there's nothing wrong at all right it, it, those seem to be the two things that I tend to notice most in how people receive black males and then when you kind of scratch under the surface and find out how much he may be going through it's a whole different story but why do you think that is that, you know, it, people can tend to overlook, you know, black males to that degree? Yeah. So uh, there's been some studies that have been done that look at uh, brain imagery when we uh, when we or other folks look at black males. Mm-hmm. And a part of the brain that lights up significantly is the part that's connected to fear. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes when we see black males, we see their behavior as dangerous. And so when we look at black males, we're not seeing them as someone that is has the potential to be sad or to not be able to cope with challenging situations. Instead, we see them as someone to fear. And so because we have that filter, when we see a black male that is depressed but is exhibiting it in terms of irritability and anger, we're more likely to be fearful of it based on that ideal of deviance or that perception that uh, that person is engaging in what would be expected behavior of them. So we would expect a black male to be angry. We would expect a black male to be irritable because that's what society says that black males are only capable of being is angry black men. Absolutely. And let me point out that Dr. Stephen Niffley is the assistant professor at Spalding University and School of Professional Psychology, as well as the associate director of the Center for Behavioral Health. Is that still accurate? That, that is still accurate. Yes, sir. Okay. He's also author of several books, um, Extended Case Studies and Program Evaluation, Designing and Implementing Effective Evaluations, Black Males in the Criminal Justice System, Out of uh, KOS, Knowledge of Self, Black Masculinity, Psychopathology and Treatment, Knowledge of Self, Understanding the Mind of the Black Male, as well as the Black Man's Guide to Graduate School. You can I found most of these on Amazon, so definitely look into his work. Um the, the, the two things that I'm dealing with in today's show um, are not only depression and suicide, but also a new approach or level of brotherhood in 2020. Now, as a professional psychologist who deals with black men, what type of brotherhood do you think would be beneficial 
in 2020 and beyond that 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 allows for black males to support one another on a different level is there anything sure, that so comes there, to mind for you yeah there, there are two things that stand out to me the first one is uh uh helping brothers to get help and knowing where to go um and then the second one is teaching brothers that uh there is a system out there that has been designed to socialize them and to socialize other people to think about them in a way that robs them of their community. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we have the capabilities to rise above that by just essentially saying that we won't buy into those narratives anymore. And so we can help brothers find help and to help them get to that help. And then we can also help brothers rise above the negative narratives that have been associated with the black male near with the black male body and experience. Mm. I think, you know, teaching brothers those steps and helping us to engage in those steps are the best ways for us to be the best brothers that we can be uh, for our black males. Okay. Now, one of the things I was talking about before, you know, we, we brought you on is that um, I've run into a number of brothers that have written me letters, you know, talking about suicide attempts talking about how close they were to that talking about because i posted a question on social media a few weeks ago and i asked them how many how many of you have people that reach out to you routinely without any vested you know there's nothing they're trying to get out of it they just want to check on you just connect with you and i was alarmed at how many i ran across that said nobody calls nobody reaches out you know what i mean and that that was really before we delved into Christmas and so on and whatever other holidays people support. Um, But, you know, that kind of dynamic where you have, you know, these men in isolation, right, with nobody reaching out. And I mentioned that I even reached out to someone just on a lark and it turned out that he was, you know, really, this happened actually, I had one reach out to me and I reached out to another, but they were on the verge of committing suicide in that moment, right? Um, and, and having another black male who could finish their sentences in terms of what they were experiencing, but just having that reach out, you know, made a huge difference. Do you find, what do you find in your research as far as that? Yeah, there's a significant power in the phrase, are you good, bro? Are you mm. good, bro? Right. You know, like it, uh, the, the annotation, the inflection connected to that allows us to communicate a long narrative about how we care about another brother um, just in that simple phrase. And I think just being able to offer that up to any brother that we see, especially the ones that we're worried about, I think is super powerful and something that we should be asking more of. Any Mm -hmm. other people that I'm connected to that are black males, I'm always asking them every time I see them, are you good, bro? And are you, how are you taking care of yourself? Because those are the two things that, that black males need to, to do more of is check in with each other, like you're saying, mm-hmm. but then also like finding ways to take care of themselves and one another. Because uh, oftentimes we're not afforded that space to do so. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, self-care and black masculinity oftentimes uh, on two separate planes of existence because we are always held to these expectations of either trying to do what society says that we should do or trying to adhere to these expectations that our own culture has of us. And that could be very damaging. Uh, and so we need to find spaces to take care of ourselves and to take care of each other and to be able to ask, are you good? You good? Absolutely. Bro? 
Absolutely. And I, and I think it's especially necessary even for the youth, because what I'm seeing with a lot of young men in this video game culture is that more and more their socializing is taking place over these abstract, you know, kind of channels where there's not a lot of face to face engagement. It's, it's really through these kind of technological mechanisms. But, you know, when they stand on their own, they're often isolated and by themselves. Um, I think we also have Dr. Neil on the line. Dr. Neil, are you there? Hold on, I'm checking with my engineering. I don't. Uh, okay, we're having some. I think he's on, but I don't hear him yet. Um, so, Dr. Neil, if you can hear me, um, uh, just let me know when you're connected in. We'll definitely bring you in. Um, now, in terms of, of, of brotherhood, what I tend to know notice is the way we're socialized. We, we, we're, we're almost kind of gunslingers at the OK Corral. You know, we kind of stand on our own in many ways. Um, and that's definitely something I want to see change in terms of black men in, in addressing one another. And, and here's the other thing. The stronger I've noticed um, men are individually. And I think this this really goes to everybody. Um, the stronger you are, the le the least people think about you when it comes to what you may need. You know what I mean? If you if you hold a certain position in the family, uh, and, and people don't literally have to regard you because you're always there for others. And I've seen this with women as well, heads of household. But you know, it tends to be those who others depend on that we think about the least in terms of when they may be in need. Um, and those are often some of the brothers that reach out to me to tell me that, you know, and, and they, they may have good jobs, they're doing well, but, you know, nobody thinks to call out and say, hey, how are you? What's going on? Uh, and I think we all need that on one level or another. But for black men, we've been socialized to do do things on our own. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really the, the, the John Henry effect, you know, where a brother goes in and he's been taught his whole life that he just needs to put his head down. And to, to work and work and work until he dies, because that's what yes. his father did. That's what his father before him did. And then he sees the respect that those men got, even though they passed away, uh, certainly before their time, simply because of the stress associated with carrying families or carrying their own emotional experience and having no place to process it. And that's we have options there. You know, we don't have to bury our heads and just keep on working. You know, we have the ability to, to balance, you know, balance the roles that we have in our families, but also balance this idea that we can also take care of ourselves as well and be able to share uh, with others when we're not doing well. You know, we have the ability to do that. Okay, well, what we're going to do right now is going to take a very short break because um, we're actually going to bring in some other people. And I told some of the brothers that you, you, you stay for 60 seconds or an hour. It's up to you. So I want to forefront that because Dr. Niffley responded and was willing to be on the show at the, at the drop of a hat. And I want to say thank you uh, for that. So we're going to take a short two-minute break, um, and then we should be able to connect everybody else on the call. All right? So we'll be right back. I think we are back. All right. All right. And so we, we also have with alongside Dr. Niffley, uh, we got in Dr. Neal, Dr. Ronald Neal. 
Uh, both of these brothers have been on my show in the past. Dr. Neal is associate professor in the Department for the Study of Religions at Wake Forest, uh, author of Democracy in the in 21st Century, Race, Class, Religion, and Region uh, on Mercer University Press, and the upcoming book, Beyond Death and Jail, Hip-Hop, Religion, and Mass Incarceration. Um, so uh, welcome, Dr. Neal. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. All right. We're going to go over a little bit today's show because uh, we, we managed to get in these brothers and I want to give them some time to address the issue. But as I said, the issue is we're dealing with uh, grappling with depression slash suicide and a new level of brotherhood in 2020 and what that means to you. Uh, any comments, Dr. Neal? Yeah, I, I want to be real uh, concise with this. Um, I think what we're dealing with, and particularly with this particular case coming out of Florida, um, is another manifestation of a breakdown, a cultural breakdown uh, in terms of um, how we understand um, black men in relationship to how black men have been formed historically. So when I look at these stories about suicide and particularly his, his mother's response to it, mm. um, it is clear to me that there is a, a breakdown in terms of how black men have been formed in any kind of stoic manner. So we have we have this stoic creed a stoic uh, understanding of masculinity where we kind of repress or suppress our emotions uh where we have been kind of socialized to to have a kind of strenuous understanding of what it means to be a man that mm -hmm. is reading the story it, it was I, I couldn't help but think about this young man who felt the burdens of being a black black male, uh, black man at an early, early age, his mother, mm -hmm. I mean, he's in a situation where he was homeless, um, mm -hmm. dealing with poverty, destitution, and dealing with the burdens. I've, yeah. I've written about this, the burdens of black masculinity. Okay, this idea that you have to be a savior, this idea that you have to uplift your mother, your, your brothers, your sisters, and everyone else. He was a football player, and we mm -hmm. understand the, the kind of tropes that go around um, football and masculinity and, and it seems to me that um, he lacked the kind of buffers the kind of cultural um, um, help supports that would um, kind of propel him into living out this kind of masculinity um, and, and this is something that has been kind of consistent over the last 20, 20 some odd years I mean we can go back to the 1990s I mean this, this narrative about black male suicides is a very deep narrative that is, that is kind of been in the public domain for for over 20 years. I mean, you can go back to people like Mike, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson tried to commit suicide. Um, you know, he drove his car into a, uh, a tree at one point in his life uh, when he was at the height of his success. Mm. Um, you know, and you know, and, and, you know, there there are there are just deep beliefs that we have had that goes back to to, to slavery um, that we have to really contend with and. Um, this is just one case, one manifestation of this long kind of trajectory where stoicism has broken down. We don't have institutions. We don't have an ideology. We do not have any type of mechanisms that allow black males, young black males in particular, to be vulnerable, to express fear, to express anxiety, to express um, their deepest worries about the future. And it seems to me that this young man who committed suicide, who stepped out on a train track, um, was a mm. casualty of all of this. We simply do not have the language to deal with this reality. And this is what we're confronted with right now. And I and I'm I'm I'm, I'm sad. I, I wish I, I wish I can say that we have 
um, other type of mechanisms in place to deal with this, but we simply do not. Um, one would think that that, that religious institutions, um, the Abrahamic institutions in terms of the church, in terms of uh, Islam, in terms of Judaism, what have you, would be there to help foster a type of healthiness that would take us beyond this, but they simply do not exist. If I hear you. There's, it's, it's interesting when you point out and, 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 you know, for Dr. Nifley, and I think we still have one other guest we're trying to get on. It's, it's really a free for all at this point. We're going to go on till about 615 Pacific. So feel free to, to join in. But uh, one of the things you said a moment ago, Dr. Niels, when you talked about um, not being able to express and the stoicism that is socially expected uh, uh, from black males. I asked my students in class every semester, you know, about that. And, you know, the, the first response is always no. It, it, you know, we, we have no problem with black males expressing themselves and so on. And so, and that's something we've heard since the 1980s. Mm -hmm. But then I start to give them examples, examples where, say, you go into a restaurant. This is actually a true story where I saw a man in a restaurant at a Red Lobster and the waiter wasn't happy with the tip he gave and he mm -hmm. attacked the father of the family mm -hmm. on, in the in the parking lot right mm -hmm. and i asked my students how would you perceive this father figure who instead of fighting back falls to his knees and says please don't hit me or mm -hmm. you know and they all start laughing you know in particular and then when i get them to explain it especially the young ladies would say no i wouldn't i wouldn't be attracted to that i wouldn't mm -hmm. want that around me. and mm -hmm. i'm saying now see that's where the rubber hits the road, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We exactly. say we're open mm -hmm. to that, but mm -hmm. when you when you don't see men, when you see men who are not serving in these protective and provisioning roles, there is a social punishment mm -hmm. that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And that and that actually, we talk about when you talk about this thing called toxic masculinity, that is toxic masculinity. Mm. Toxic mas masculinity is our inability an unwillingness to embrace black males in their deepest sense of vulnerability, mm. in their fear, in their anxiety, in, in, in all those things that we associate with being unmanly. That is toxic masculinity. Mm. It's a kind of toxic, toxic masculinity that is not something that's not, that's not just embraced by black males or sustained by them, but it is cultural wide. It's a societal phenomenon. This ideals that we cannot be vulnerable. Mm. That is toxic masculinity. And so, so when we talk about black men being weak and being soft and all these sorts of things and being fearful and whatever, and, and, and black males not being able to endure death and pain and all of these things, that is toxic masculinity at its core, at least in terms of how it's being framed in the popular domain mm -hmm. uh, right now. So this young man, so in, in many respects, this man was a victim of that. This young man, his mother, in, in terms of the narrative that has been given up to this point, his mother telling him to man up, his mother uh, telling him to, to toughen up and endure. You're talking about poverty. From what I saw in that story, we're talking about homelessness. Yes. We're talking about deep deprivation. How is it that a teenager, 17, 16, 18 years old, is supposed to deal with something that he had no control over? 
He had no control over who, how he was born, born into poverty. We all know the, the, the particulars, the details of his mother's life, the choices that she made, but yet he has to be responsible for all of this stuff. Yeah. And we're not living in a reality where you can finish high school at 17 and go off on your own. You know, I, I, that's not the reality anymore. It used to be no. in, the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, you could get a blue collar job, you know, maybe at 16 or 17 or sorry, 17 or 18. And you could transition into that. But we're not living in that reality any longer. No. Right. No. So so in terms of being able to sustain that being a young teenager looking to go to college with the weight of supporting a family, it, it, that's a tremendous amount of pressure. And the right? most important thing to think about this. So. Uh, when you look at so I'm 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 teaching a course right now. I'm getting ready to teach a course um, in the next few weeks, dealing with black men, death in jail, and et cetera. Right to my scholarship, and you look at black men. So I, there's one autobiography I'm looking at right now. Uh, Albert Woodfox is called Solitary. He spent 40 some odd years in solitary confinement. He was a Black Panther in Angola prison. He comes from a completely different generation. You have black males who were boomers who came out of a culture. They came out of a culture, and you can even look at someone like Huey, Huey P. Newton. Those black males from that era, they had a culture that supported them. They had a culture that sustained a kind of stoic commitment to black people. We no longer have that culture. It no longer exists. And so you have these black males who are coming along, who are 16, 17, 18, and 20 years old. They don't have a kind of cultural mechanism to support the type of stoicism that we expect of them. Absolutely. And, and, and we don't, we often don't think of stoicism as a, as a, as an institutional practice. We think of it in an, in individual terms. No. Now, now I want to reintroduce this, this, this number I put out according to CDC data from 1999 to 2017, there have been about 3,294 black females that have com committed suicide mm -hmm. and about 23,295 black males. And I re I use female and male because it's across age. It's, it mm -hmm. also includes the youth. Now, I want to also welcome uh, Dr. Uh, Oshan Gadsden, who's been on the show as well. Uh, Oshan, are you there? I'm here, sir. How are you? Good, good. We're on here with Dr. Ronald Neal, Dr. Stephen Niffley. Uh, Dr. Gadsden is assistant professor with the Department of Psychology at Norfolk State University and is contributing faculty member and research mentor in the APA accredited PhD clinical psychology uh, Virginia consortium program. And he's also adjunct clinical instructor in the Steinhardt School of Education at NYU. Welcome uh, back to the Onyx Report. Good brother. Thanks for having me. Happy uh, New Year's to each of your brothers. Yeah, happy New Year's to you, man. We, we, we're talking about two basic things. We're talking about depression and suicide, especially having come out of the holiday season. Uh, and we're also talking about a new, a necessary new level of brotherhood in 2020 and further. So please feel free to comment on both. We got, we got another 15 minutes that we'll be on and it's really kind of a free for all, but we'd like for you to give some insight on either or hopefully both of those, those concepts. So. Uh, join in, brother. Well, I'm sure uh, I haven't been listening, but I'm sure the good brothers and yourselves have already talked about uh, the ways in which uh, researchers and clinicians have thought about black masculinity mm. uh, and, a very, and the epistemology uh, and framework do not allow uh, for black males to be seen or observed 
um, as full as full humans. And what I mean by that, the ability for clinicians and researchers to honor the full range of emotions and the full range of humanity. And what often happens, uh, particularly with clinicians, uh, is that um, students that are being trained and, and student and uh, clinicians who already have their degrees often have a hard time really making good clinical, uh, I call it cultural, uh, competent assessment. And they see behaviors um, of that black males or black men are uh, exhibiting and they often um, uh, see it, you know, from a very antisocial or behavioral uh, uh, problem, and often do not uh, really diagnose properly, or can't really uh, take in that many of the behaviors or many of the ways in which black men and black males are coping and navigating uh, life has to do with uh, unresolved depression and unresolved anxiety. Uh, and often as a result of that, we, we see manualized treatments being used, um, interventions or conceptualizations or orientations being used that do not fit uh, the cultural landscape of black males. Uh, and so black males who are in treatment often are mistreated or mm. misdiagnosed uh, and really are not um, able to really explore from a cultural, spiritual perspective the things in which they are carrying uh, and, and, and being healed as a result. Mm. Uh, yeah, those are the first things that come to me initially about this conversation. And I think the to your second piece about um, uh, brotherhood and us needing each other, I think uh, obviously uh, from my perspective, uh, this is something that is really missing and I really would like to develop um, a, a real city-by-city um, city initiative mm -hmm. where, we, where we can uh, have black men like ourselves come with come in and, you know, whether it's a community center or whatever the context is, bring brothers together and really have open conversations about some of the things in which uh, concern them. Mm -hmm. And to really build this um, mutual accountability, but not only a mutual accountability, but this uh, um, real um, presence, uh, a real, uh, let me just back up, I'm sorry, and, uh, just this real opportunity for black men to know that there are other black men that are um, navigating some of the same uh, intersection or multidimensional issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and really um, equipping men with skills uh, that enable them to hear each other uh, and to be able to not only point them and refer them to spaces where they can heal in greater ways, but to use our uh, similarities uh, as a way to connect us spiritually to one another and to hold each other up in consciousness. And so I really think that those things are, are needed, not only in a clinical sense with, with, with um, uh, psychotherapy groups, but really in a community uh, perspective or a community context, whether that be community agencies, whether that be churches or synagogues or spiritual communities where we really develop some sort of structured uh, initiatives around black brotherhood and mutual accountability. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, anything else on brotherhood? Now, I have I have two psychologists, and and my brother Dr. Neil is in, in religion. 
Um, and 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 I I asked you guys because of your training, because of your experience and your con- in the context you work in about this, because I think it's important, and I think we underestimate it. But other approaches to brotherhood in 2020, what is not happening enough, um, and can and can be built upon. Well, I, I have to I have to uh, build on and, and kind of co-sign what uh, Dr. Gaston has just said in terms of um, approaching this not simply from a, a macroscopic level, but from a microscopic level. That is to to think about communities and and, and I, this is something that I have thought about uh, in, in, in a significant manner in terms of locality, like where I am. I'm in Winston Salem, North Carolina. I'm, I'm I'm here in the state, and it's something I've thought about seriously in terms of uh, black men within my locale and, mm. and 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 getting them together and giving black men the space to talk about these deep existential issues uh, in a way that is non-judgmental in a way that fosters healing, in a way that allows them to talk about their lives and their fullness. I think this is something that we have to do. And I think that a part of that um, involves us really getting some of the some of the barriers or obstacles to that. And one of it has to do with I, what, I, what I consider is just a kind of a, an individualistic um, approach to masculinity that we have been inundated with. That is, is that we are conditioned to compete against each other. We mm-hmm. are con- we are con- we are con- conditioned to be in an, an adversarial relationship with one another, to sue to see each other as simply as as competitors and as enemies, as all these sorts of things. And this prevents us from talking about the very deep stuff in our lives. It prevents us from, from dealing with with the reality of death, with, with, with dealing with, you know, hypertension, dealing with depression, anxiety, dealing with obesity, dealing with all these health issues that we deal with, and we have to overcome that. And when I, when I think about it, so we have black male organizations, right? You know, you have the alphas, you have the Qs, you have these other organizations that have, you know, kind of kind of typify black professional men and what have you. And those organizations, and I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody or anything like that. But in my lifetime, I have not seen how uh, that type of structure has really benefited the collective of black men. And, and the reason why I don't see it is because it, 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 those those structures are driven by competition. Mm-hmm. We have to think about what it means for us to be black men in this society, to move beyond competition, to move beyond tribalism, to move beyond ego egoism to move beyond the big man mentality, to move behind the, the, the HNIC syndrome that so many of us are, are afflicted with. And that what, that's what prevents us from being mentally sound and healthy as a collective. And I think that that's the, the most significant problem that we as black men have to overcome. You know, it's interesting that you say that because uh you know one of the things I, I first think about if black males engage um you know it, it from a vulnerable standpoint is whether or not other black males will first be the ones to to you know to ridicule you and 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 i know that comes out of a practice i mean what's the phrase we always hear steel sharpen steel or uh-huh. you, know, it, yeah. you know i i know that that's the context for it and there is a place for that i'm not saying that that has no place but we do need to you know add some other skill sets to how we communicate i believe 
as as men because there's really no other group that's experiencing what black men are experiencing and if you can't find resource in others who are going through it who are you going to find any kind of resource from Mm -hmm. but 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 please anyone else that might want to chime in on I, I definitely agree uh, with what was just said. I think that that was really powerfully stated. When I was hearing uh, him talk, I was really thinking about, you know, the impact of anti-blackness or the internalization of anti-blackness and white supremacy in how we perform black masculinity mm-hmm. and these rigid, uh, excuse me, these rigid ideas, excuse me, uh, of uh, really dualistic ways of understanding emotions and understanding masculine performances. And so, so I do think that we as black men have to contend with this gendered, racialized, double consciousness uh, that we are carrying. And we have to directly speak to how it has negatively really impacted not only, of course, our own sense of self, our own sense of agency, our own spiritual identities, but also how we can take in or can or have difficulty taking in the other. And so I do think that we really do have to continue to talk about those subtle ways that whiteness and white patriarchy uh, and hegemonic white ideals of masculinity and emotionality have creeped into the psyche uh, and emotionality of black males, call it out and begin to challenge ourselves to more progressive and fluid and open and vulnerable, uh, not, I don't want to say performances of masculinity, but maybe uh, masculine being uh, Mm -hmm. that will inevitably, from my perspective, open us up to, of course, healing uh, individual wounds, but healing cultural wounds, and then taking that healing uh, out to other parts of our community and other people, persons, children, wives, sisters, mothers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I have to say this. So the young man that we're talking about, so he was an athlete, right? I mean, we're talking yeah. about we're talking about a, a form, a performance, a, an arena of masculinity where we are, you know, driven to be competitive. This is, you know, you know, football, sports, and all that represent the kind of the quintess the quintessence of American masculinity, mm-hmm. the quintessence of what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about a young man who was in a position to really benefit from football mm-hmm. in the position. Mm-hmm. He was, he was a competitor. He was, he was someone who had a, 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 you know, a scholarship going to Georgia tech and all that kind of stuff. Yet he, he surrendered. He, 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 he succumbed to the, the forces of, of vulnerability, and, and he, you know, he eventually, you know, gave himself to this kind of self-immolation suicide, you know. Yeah. And so I think that this is something that's very significant because, you know, I mean, you can't you can't think of any other arena outside of sports where we as black men are conditioned to be gladiators, to be mm. warriors, to fight against each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so what that says to me is that. We really have to attend to this. We have to attend to the problem um, of, of this type of competition, of this type of the gladiatorial um, psychology that we have, that right now it is not, it is not working to our advantage. It is hurting mm-hmm. us. It is harming mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you think about it, when you think about it at larger levels in terms of um, um, upward mobility in, in the professional arena, when you think about capitalism and all that kind of stuff, you know, you, you have to really step back and say, listen, we have to come together and do something that is radically different. So, so, so as, as I'm, I'm, I, was, I was thinking about Dr. Gaston as he was talking, I'm thinking about 50 Cent. We know 50 Cent. 
and we know 50 Cent and, and the beef mentality. We know 50 Cent and the kind of emasculating type of enterprise that he's been involved in for, for most uh. of his career. You're talking uh. about a, a black man who was over 40. He's 40-something years old, and mm. he has defined himself as a black man who has been in beef with other mm. black yeah, right. men. You right. know what I'm saying? Right, right. This is the kind of anti-blackness that Dr. Gasson is talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is the type of anti-blackness internalized that we have to get over. When we when we look at these black males who are killing each other in the streets, I'm in I'm in North Carolina. I, I was talking to a female friend of mine about a situation that happened in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a mall where you have black men who, 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 who engage in a, in a shootout at a mall, killing each other, jeopardizing people's lives, okay? Mm. And I can't help but think about the internalized self-hatred that exists within so many of us that we have not dealt with. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is the problem that we really have to uh, grapple with, deconstruct, and and deal with in order for for us to be mentally healthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I want to say we, we've just been gifted with about 16 additional minutes. <laughs> so, so we have a little, we have a little bit more time. And, and I want to reiterate my, my gratitude to, you know, the three brothers I have on, Dr. Neal, who just spoke, Dr. Gadsden uh, and Dr. Niffley, all of whom agreed to, to show up on, on the show at, a, at you know, at, a, at with no notice. So I want to thank all of you. And I let you guys know, you know, you, you got 30 seconds or you can stay the whole time. It's entirely up to you. But I really appreciate you guys chiming in. But with, with what you just said, Dr. Neal, one of the things that came to mind for me, and I know you guys have had this experience in teaching, I run across a lot of the kind of black males under the pressure of uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. I think it was Bryce Gowdy was the name of the young man. Uh, uh-huh. Where is he? who committed suicide and and one of the things that we don't talk about is the enormous amount of pressure yeah. right these are these so in one vein we're talking about athletes who often come into a university in many instances instances academically unprepared mm-hmm. but have the pressure of providing for families at the age of 17 right by going pro or whatever it is. And and the pressure there, not only for needing to provide for family, but knowing that simply walking down the stairs can end your entire career, career before it gets started. At every moment, there's a fear and a pressure with whether or not you'll be able to achieve what is expected of you. But here's the other part. It's not limited to academics. I, I mean, to, to athletics. I have young men who are in my classroom who don't even have a major yet they're not athletes, but they are expected to do the same things for family that we're seeing these athletes expected to do. Mm-hmm. And the amount of pressure mm-hmm. that that places on them. Does anybody want to speak to how pressure plays a role in this dynamic and what we might be able to do about that? So, so if I if I'm offer up something here, uh, brothers, uh, this is kind of what I was alluding to with this idea of, of silent frustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having a conversation around that. So for many of our black men, uh, we're expected to live up to these three P's, if you will, being the priest, provider, and protector of our homes. Mm. Uh, but then at the same time, there's this expectation from the larger society that we are supposed to be dumb, de- uh, deviant, and dangerous. Mm. And so on one side, we have these three P's. And the other side, we have these three Ds. And somewhere in the middle, we're supposed to reconcile, well, which one are we supposed to follow? 
Mm-hmm. And what happens when we're not able to live up to either one of those mm-hmm. and the consequences that come from that? And so those are the challenges that many of us are facing is the tension and conflict between what society says that we're supposed to be and what our families are supposed to be in this larger context that oftentimes prevent us from leaving, living up to the three Ps and then encouraging more of the dumb, deviant, and dangerous perspective. Mm. You know, that, that was powerful. <laughs> indeed, yeah. indeed. Because, you know, I was thinking, uh, when he's talking, I was just thinking about this idea of uh, gendered, racialized, gender role conflict, mm-hmm. right? And I teach a course I've been teaching for a couple of years, and it just gets fascinating each semester, the psychology of black masculinity. Mm. And it's fascinating because I teach the course in a very theoretical but experiential manner as well. So a lot of what uh, motivates, obviously, students at an HBCU to take this course is uh, the fact that many of them are male and black male or identify as black males. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we do have black uh, uh, women uh, that also join the courts. Mm-hmm. But when I think about pressure, uh, when you uh, gentlemen were talking, I was thinking about your point to the pressure that a lot of these young men are coming with that don't have families as of yet, who are still mm-hmm. holding these internalized gender role conflicts around identity and around performance, uh, which in, uh, which encompass mobility and economics uh, that they're holding and that they're in many ways using their education as a vehicle to get to. Um, but the other piece that I'm also noticing with um, these uh, black men in this course, and of course some of my black male patients, is the pressure of unresolved trauma. Mm-hmm. And how many mm-hmm. of my black brothers are holding so much trauma as it relates yes. to sexual trauma, and yes. to physical abuse, emotional mm-hmm. abuse, spiritual abuse, um, that they hold in. And for many of them, this course for them is the first time that they feel safe enough to begin to say, well, oh, shit, maybe what was done to me or what was said to me isn't proper mm-hmm. or appropriate. Mm-hmm. Or maybe mm-hmm. what I really want to do. Maybe there's something else that I really want to do, but I've been uh, limited by the perception of others or what others want me to do. Right. And so you get to hear these stories of men who are just holding so much unresolved pressure that relates to trauma and relates to um, the perception of others that they have internalized and that really motivate their performance and their idea of life. Now, that's that's incredibly important, because one of the things that that, that when I talk to my students in class, I actually ask them you know, qu- questions as a group. And, and I've done this every semester for at least five years. And one of the things that I found is that even now, 17 to 20 year old black males are expected to make three figure incomes mm-hmm. as students mm-hmm. to date the women that they are sitting in class with. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about pressure and, and the internalization of certain types of masculinity, this is an internalization that I think has taken place on a very wide scale, mm. because if you're basically being told that you're not worthy while sitting in college in a classroom, you know what I mean? Because you don't make these unrealistic amounts of money, it, it, that that's already a beginning point for a certain type of pressure that, that that we can add on to this discussion. But when you also add in trauma, that is extremely profound and necessary to add to the dynamic because much of the trauma that I, I argue that, you know, black males experience even from a younger age, 
is not necessarily regarded as trauma when it happens to boys. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. regarded as trauma when it happens to other groups, but not mm -hmm. when it comes to black, especially black boys. Mm -hmm. it, you know, and and that goes back to some of that John Henry yeah. kind of you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps, suck it up, and keep walking. But there's a point where you know there's a tremendous amount of damage. Mm -hmm. that's done internally that that doesn't get reconciled and you're talking 40 50 60 year old men who haven't been able to really reconcile the trauma they experience in their teens if not younger mm -hmm. and I, I think it's important to, to to add the historical dimension to this i mean we're talking about generational trauma yes okay? sir yes and sir. i think that and i i think a lot about someone a figure like booker t washington we have the story of booker t washington up from slavery and all of that I think Booker T. Washington is paradigmatic for a lot of black males, okay? The kind of quintessential story of this black male who was raised by a single mother. He didn't know who his father was. It was, it was ambiguity around that. He had to basically pull himself. That, that's the narrative that we're given. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yes. And you become this type of savior type figure, yes. okay? Mm -hmm. And your internal life, your internal life, your emotional life, your... Mm -hmm spiritual life means nothing. nothing it is zero you are you are a soulless human being you have no personality whatsoever your entire existence is about lifting others up your entire existence is utilitarian yes and so the yes. thing is is that you have black males here we are here we are in 2019 Mm. 20, no, 2020. Yes. In 2020, talking about black males who were still held up to this utilitarian, utopian standard of what it means to be a man, mm -hmm. a, a kind of man that cannot be realized in space and time. That's right. That is what we're dealing with. And so you have these young, and we see this across, and you're, and you're, absolutely, you're absolutely correct. It's not just athletes, it's across class. It's, yes. among, it's among black males who were born lower income, black males who are uh, lower middle class, black males who are middle class. All black males, regardless of class, are expected to perform and live up to some utopian understanding of what it means to be a man. And it all comes at the expense of your personality, of your emotions, of who you are as an individual. And so it, 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 it's not unsurprising when we succumb to alcoholism. It's not yes. surprising when we succumb to drug addiction. It is not surprising. We, we, we succumb to all sorts of, you know, sexual maladies or what have you. It is not surprising when we do that mm -hmm. because we are still holding on to an, uh, an idea of masculinity that is rooted in some yes. late 19th century, yes. even pre-19th century yes, sir. understanding of what it means to be a man. Yes, absolutely. And I, mean, I see that. Oh, oh I'm sorry, brother. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say I see that so much with. Uh, patients, black male patients uh, who come individually and in couples. And when I ask black men, uh, so how do you get your needs met in a relationship? Uh, what what do you, um, uh, you know, how, how does she, you know, uh, what does she do for you? Uh, you know, what do you get out of it? And many black men look at me and, and you know, they're surprised that I even asked they them. Never, they never had, uh, thought of that question before, That's have the they? the first thing they say, Dr. Johnson, I have never been asked that question before. Absolutely. No one asked me what Absolutely. I was Absolutely. And I'm so glad you pointed that out because I asked my young men, how many of you have met women who have lists of expectations? I have yet to meet a man that hasn't. 
expectations whether it has to do with income your body dimensions your height your physicality your ability your your career your uh, all kinds of lists but when i ask those very same men how many of you have a list of not only expectations in terms of what you want out of a partner but things that you need in a relationship i've yet to have one young man have a list mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so when you start to look at that dynamic, you, you, you know, and this goes back to something Dr. Neal was pointing out. We have been bred mm -hmm. to serve the interests of others, mm -hmm. but we don't know how to ask those questions of ourselves in terms of something as basic as what is it that I need? Mm -hmm. and, and, and here's the last twist I'll put on that because we only have about five minutes and I definitely want to get, you know, you guys in. But the last twist I'll put on that is even for brothers that have achieved what we were told was success. Whether it be degrees, whether it be income, whether it be fame, what you often find is that those brothers are still not necessarily happy in one sense, but often are not in situations where they are receiving back what they thought would come with those successes. You know what I mean? They're not they don't get back, whether it be in intimate relationships or even in social friendships, they don't get back what they were told they would get. Right. Because as men, we're, we're raised on the notion of the hero's journey. Right. Where you, you go out in the world, you achieve what you're said to achieve. Uh, that makes you a good man, a constructive man. And in return, you'll get love. You'll get support. You'll get adoration. No. No, I, I, I think at the end at the end of the day, I mean, we are still regarded as, as being disposable. We are still seen as usury. We're still seen as you know tools to be used for the the, the benefit of other people's interest uh, it doesn't it doesn't matter whether you're a doctor an engineer a professor it doesn't matter what you know where you are you i mean i'm a, a working class black male who works for you know pepsi or ups or whatever you mm. know what i'm saying and you i mean it, it does not matter you understand i mean there are no rewards there is this type of idea that you know the 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 type of type of meritocracy and uh, everything that comes with it and 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 struggle and 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 the rewards of success the spoils of success it is it's meaningless to 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 all of us okay mm -hmm. because we are still seen as being outside of the purview of american you know the Mary, the, the american type of formulaic of what it means to be a successful man and we and we lack the type of we don't receive the type of respect and the regard that let's say let's be honest that white men receive <laughs> other men who are not black who achieve those sorts of things it doesn't happen for us mm. we're still niggers at the end of the day mm. Mm. well we have uh we got, we got three minutes any final statements about brotherhood and grappling with depression, uh, suicide, any final statements? And, and, and I like to kind of go around and let you guys get that in. Well, I, I would like to say, uh, first of all, Dr. Johnson, thank you for inviting me back again. And uh, on some level, this conversation is a mirror of what you uh, your question uh, that you posed for this for this uh, radio of uh, this uh, podcast mm. is uh, what we were doing for the last 50 minutes is something that we need to uh, continue to structureize mm. uh, on a city by city uh, basis, state by mm. state, uh, and really develop these type this type of initiative where brothers come like us and talk. Because as the, each of you were talking, um, I felt the spirit. 
And however you define spirit is how you define it. But I felt the spirit. Mm. And for me, what that meant is I felt uh, a reson uh, something resonated within me. There mm. was a, a shay, you know, this is right. <laughs> this is right. And, and not only is was it this is right, but there was something that was strengthened in me to know that there are other brothers who yeah. have had the same yeah. experiences and have the same values. And yeah. so I think that what we saw in this little 50 minutes or an hour is something I love to see replicated uh, on, a, on a, a larger scale. Well, you, you're absolutely right. And, and that even, and we don't have time for it at the moment, but that even goes into the question of male-only spaces, black male-only spaces, and the way that those spaces have been kind of uh, you know, unraveled to the degree where they're considered a negative simply on the basis of that whether or not they exist mm -hmm. so what does that do to men who no longer have those spaces but um dr niffley any final thoughts observations sure you know I, i'm always a solution focused type of guy and so like i would just want to offer up the importance of checking in on our brothers mm -hmm. making sure that we're always asking those folks around us and the brothers that we know and love are they good and then also just uh, reminding brothers that they can always return to sender the negative uh, narratives that have been associated with the black male experience, mm -hmm. that we always have the opportunity to think flexibly around what does black masculinity look like, and that we always have the ability to do us in terms of how we define ourselves and not what society says. Thank you. And and where we have only a few minutes, a few seconds left, but I want to give uh, Dr. Neal, if you can close us out with your final thoughts. I said, man, this this is 2020, and this is the, the the right time for us to have this conversation. To deal with suicide, to deal with depression, our internal, emotional, psychological condition. Um, I think this conversation needs to to be expanded. We need to talk about this endlessly. Uh, the women have their movements. They've they've done uh, a tremendous job in dealing with their issues, and and right now is the time for us to to address our internal condition. Absolutely. I want to thank all of you again, especially for coming in at the last second. And I want to thank the listeners for joining in on the Onyx Report. And we'll be back in two weeks uh, dealing with the definition of happiness for mm. black men. All right. Thanks very much for showing out. Bless you. Thank you.